Chapter 11 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Reynard. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova Volume 1 The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova Episode 2 Cleric in Naples Chapter 11 My short but rather too gay visit to Ancona Cecilia, Marina, Bellino, the Greek slave of the Lazaretto Bellino discovers himself. I arrived in Ancona on the 25th of February, 1744, and put up at the best inn. Pleased with my room, I told mine host to prepare for me a good meat dinner. But he answered that during Lent all good Catholics eat nothing but fish. The Holy Father has granted me permission to eat meat. Let me see your permission. He gave it to me by word of mouth. Reverend sir, I am not obliged to believe you. You are a fool. I am master in my own house, and I beg you will go to some other inn. Such an answer, coupled to a most unexpected notice to quit, threw me into a violent passion. I was swearing, raving, screaming, when suddenly... A grave-looking individual made his appearance in my room, and said to me, Sir, you are wrong in calling for meat, when in Ancona fish is much better. You are wrong in expecting the landlord to believe you on your bare word, and, if you have obtained the permission from the Pope, you have been wrong in soliciting it at your age. You have been wrong in not asking for such permission in writing. You are wrong in calling the host a fool because it is a compliment that no man is likely to accept in his own house. And finally, you are wrong in making such an uproar. Far from increasing my bad temper, this individual, who had entered my room only to treat me to a sermon, made me laugh. I willingly plead guilty, sir, I answered, to all the counts which you allude against me. But it is raining, it is getting late, I am tired and hungry and therefore you will easily understand that I do not feel disposed to change my quarters. Will you give me some supper, as the landlord refuses to do so? No, he replied with great composure, because I am a good Catholic, and fast. But I will undertake to make it all right for you with the landlord, who will give you a good supper. Thereupon he went downstairs, and I... Comparing my hastiness to his calm, acknowledged the man worthy of teaching me some lessons. He soon came up again, informed me that peace was signed and that I would be served immediately. Will you not take supper with me? No, but I will keep you company. I accepted his offer, and, to learn who he was, I told him my name, giving myself the title of secretary to Cardinal Aqua Viva. My name is Sancio Pico, he said. I am a Castilian, 
and the Provveditore of the army of H.C.M., which is commanded by Count de Gage, under the orders of the Generalissimo, the Duke of Modem. My excellent appetite astonished him, and he inquired whether I had dined. No, said I, and I saw his countenance assume an air of satisfaction. Are you not afraid such a supper will hurt? On the contrary, I hope it will do me a great deal of good. Then you have deceived the Pope? No, for I did not tell him that I had no appetite, but only that I liked meat better than fish. If you feel disposed to hear some good music, he said a moment after, follow me to the next room. The prima donna of Ancona lives there. The words prima donna interested me at once, and I followed him. I saw, sitting before a table, a woman already somewhat advanced in age, with two young girls and two boys. But I looked in vain for the actress, whom Don Sancio Pico at last presented to me in the shape of one of the two boys, who was remarkably handsome and might have been seventeen. I thought he was a castrato, who, as is the custom in Rome, performed all the parts of a prima donna. The mother presented me to her other son, likewise very good-looking, but more manly than the castrato, although younger. His name was Petronio, and, keep me up the transformation of the family, he was the first female dancer at the opera. The eldest girl, who was also introduced to me, was named Cecilia, and studied music. She was twelve years old. The youngest, called Marina, was only eleven, and, like her brother, Petronio, was consecrated to the worship of Terpsichore. Both the girls were very pretty. The family came from Bologna, and lived upon the talent of its members. Cheerfulness and amiability replaced wealth with them. Bellino, such was the name of the castrato, yielding to the entreaties of Don Sancio, rose from the table, went to the harpsichord, and sang with the voice of an angel, and with delightful grace. The Castilian listened, with his eyes closed in an ecstasy of enjoyment. But I, far from closing my eyes, gazed into Bellino's, which seemed to dart amorous lightnings upon me. I could discover in him some of the features of Lucretia and the graceful manner of the Marchioness, and everything betrayed a beautiful woman, for his dress concealed but imperfectly the most splendid bosom. The consequence was that, in spite of his having been introduced as a man, I fancied that the so-called Bellino was a disguised beauty, and my imagination, taking at once the highest flight, I became thoroughly enamoured. We spent two very pleasant hours, and I returned to my room accompanied by the Castilian. I intend to leave very early tomorrow morning, he said, for Sini Gaglia, with the Abbe Vilmarcati, but I expect to return for supper the day after tomorrow. I wished him a happy journey, saying that we would most likely meet on the road, as I should probably leave Ancona myself on the same day, 
after paying a visit to my banker. I went to bed, thinking of Bellino, and of the impression he had made upon me. I was sorry to go away, without having proved him that I was not the dupe of his disguise. Accordingly, I was well pleased to see him enter my room in the morning, as soon as I had opened my door. He came to offer me the services of his young brother, Petronio, during my stay in Ancona, instead of my engaging a valet de place. I willingly agreed to the proposal, and sent Petronio to get coffee for all the family. I asked Bellino to sit on my bed, with the intention of making love to him, and of treating him like a girl. But the two young sisters ran into my room, and disturbed my plans. Yet the trio formed before me a very pleasing sight. They represented natural beauty and artless cheerfulness of three different kinds. Unobtrusive familiarity, theatrical wit, pleasing playfulness, and pretty Bolognese manners, which I witnessed for the first time. All this would have sufficed to cheer me if I had been downcast. Cecilia and Marina were two sweet rosebuds, which, to bloom in all their beauty, required only the inspiration of love, and they would certainly have had the preference over Bellino if I had seen him in only the miserable outcast of mankind, or rather the pitiful victim of sacerdotal cruelty. For, in spite of their youth, the two amiable girls offered on their dawning bosom the precious image of womanhood. Petronio came with the coffee, which he poured out, and I sent some to the mother, who never left her room. Petronio was a true male harlot by taste and by profession. The species is not scarce in Italy, where the offence is not regarded with the wild and ferocious intolerance of England and Spain. I had given him one sequin to pay for the coffee, and told him to keep the change, and to chew me his gratitude, he gave me a voluptuous kiss with half-open lips, supposing me in a taste which I was very far from entertaining. I disabused him, but he did not seem the least ashamed. I told him to order dinner for six persons, but he remarked that he would order it only for four, as he had to keep his dear mother company. She always took her dinner in bed. Everyone to his taste, I thought, and I let him do as he pleased. Two minutes after he had gone, the landlord came to my room and said, Reverend Sir, the persons you have invited here have each the appetite of two men at least. I give you notice of it because I must charge accordingly. All right, I replied, but let us have a good dinner. When I was dressed, I thought I ought to pay my compliments to the compliant mother. I went to her room and congratulated her upon her children. She thanked me for the presents I had given to Petronio, and began to make me the confident of her distress. The manager of the theatre, she said, is a miser who has given us only fifty Roman crowns for the whole carnival. We have spent them for our living and to return to Bologna. We shall have to walk and beg our way. Her confidence moved my pity. So I took a gold quadruple from my purse 
and offered it to her. She wept for joy and gratitude. I promise you another gold quadruple, madam, I said, if you will confide in me entirely. Confess that Bellino is a pretty woman in disguise. I can assure you it is not so, although he has the appearance of a woman. Not only the appearance, madam, but the tone, the manners, I am a good judge. Nevertheless, he is a boy, for he has had to be examined before he could sting on the stage here. And who examined him? My Lord Bishop's chaplain. A chaplain? Yes, and you may satisfy yourself by inquiring from him. The only way to clear my doubt would be to examine him myself. You may, if he has no objection. But truly, I cannot interfere, as I do not know what your interests are. They are quite natural. I returned to my room, and sent Petronio for a bottle of Cyprus wine. He brought the wine and seven sequins, the change for the doubloon I had given him. I divided them between Bellino, Cecilia and Marina, and begged the two young girls to leave me alone with their brother. Bellino, I am certain that your natural conformation is different from mine. My dear, you are a girl. I am a man, but a castrato. I have been examined. Allow me to examine you likewise, and I will give you a doubloon. I cannot, for it is evident that you love me, and such love is condemned by religion. You did not raise these objections with the bishop's chaplain. He was an elderly priest, and besides, he only just glanced at me. I will know the truth, said I, extending my hand boldly. But he repulsed me, and rose from his chair. His obstinacy vexed me for I had already spent fifteen or sixteen sequins to satisfy my curiosity. I began my dinner with a very bad humour, but the excellent appetite of my pretty guests brought me round, and I soon thought that, after all, cheerfulness was better than sulking, and I resolved to make up for my disappointment with the two charming sisters, who seemed well disposed to enjoy a frolic. I began by distributing a few innocent kisses, right and left, as I sat between them near a good fire, eating chestnuts, which we wetted with cypress wine. But very soon my greedy hands touched every part which my lips could not kiss, and Cecilia, as well as Marina, delighted in the game. Seeing that Bellino was smiling, I kissed him likewise, and his half-open ruffle attracting my hand. I ventured and went in without resistance. The chisel of Praxiteles had never carved a finer bosom. Oh, this is enough, I exclaimed. I can no longer doubt that you are a beautifully formed woman. It is, he replied, the defect of all castrati. No, it is the perfection of all handsome women. Bellino, believe me, I am enough of a good judge to distinguish between the deformed breast of a castrato and that of a beautiful woman, 
and your alabaster bosom belongs to a young beauty of seventeen summers. Who does not know that love, inflamed by all that can excite it, never stops in young people until it is satisfied, and that one favour granted kindles the wish for a greater one? I had begun well. I tried to go further, and to smother with burning kisses that which my hand was pressing so ardently. But the false Bellino, as if he had only just been aware of the illicit pleasure I was enjoying, rose and ran away. Anger increased in me the ardour of love, and feeling the necessity of calming myself, either by satisfying my ardent desires, or by evaporating them, I begged Cecilia, Bellino's pupil, to sing a few Neapolitan airs. I then went out to call upon the banker, from whom I took a letter of exchange at sight upon Bologna, for the amount I had to receive from him, and on my return, after a light supper with the two young sisters, I prepared to go to bed, having previously instructed Petronio to order a carriage for the morning. I was just locking my door, when Cecilia, half undressed, came in to say that Bellino begged me to take him to Rimini, where he was engaged to sing in an opera to be performed after Easter. Go and tell him, my dear little seraph, that I am ready to do what he wishes, if he will only grant me in your presence what I desire. I want to know for a certainty whether he is a man or a woman. She left me and returned soon, saying that Bellino had gone to bed, but that if I would postpone my departure for one day only, he promised to satisfy me on the morrow. Tell me the truth, Cecilia, and I will give you six sequins. I cannot earn them, for I have never seen him naked, and I cannot swear to his being a girl. But he must be a man, otherwise he would not have been allowed to perform here. Well, I will remain until the day after tomorrow, provided you keep me company tonight. Do you love me very much? Very much indeed, if you show yourself very kind. I will be very kind, for I love you dearly likewise. I will go and tell my mother. Of course you have a lover. I never had one. She left my room, and in a short time came back full of joy, saying that her mother believed me an honest man. She, of course, meant a generous one. Cecilia locked the door, and throwing herself in my arms, covered me with kisses. She was pretty, charming, but I was not in love with her, and I was not able to say to her as to Lucretia, You have made me so happy. But she said it herself, and I did not feel much flattered, although I pretended to believe her. When I woke up in the morning, I gave her a tender salutation, and presenting her with three doubloons, which must have particularly delighted the mother, I sent her away without losing my time in promising everlasting constancy. A promise as absurd as it is trifling, and which the most virtuous man ought never to make even to the most beautiful of women. After breakfast, I sent for mine host, and ordered an excellent supper for five persons. Feeling certain that Don Sancio, whom I expected in the evening, 
would not refuse to honour me by accepting my invitation, and with the idea I made up my mind to go without my dinner. The Bolognese family did not require to imitate my diet to ensure a good appetite for the evening. I then summoned Bellino to my room, and claimed the performance of his promise, but he laughed, remarked that the day was not past yet, and said that he was certain of travelling with me. I fairly warn you that you cannot accompany me unless I am fully satisfied. Well, I will satisfy you. Shall we go and take a walk together? Willingly, I will dress myself. While I was waiting for him, Marina came in with a dejected countenance, inquiring how she had deserved my contempt. Cecilia has passed the night with you. Bellino will go with you tomorrow. I am the most unfortunate of us all. Do you want money? No, for I love you. But Marinetta, you are too young. I am much stronger than my sister. Perhaps you have a lover. Oh, no. Very well. We can try this evening. Good. Then I will tell mother to prepare clean sheets for tomorrow morning. Otherwise everybody here would know that I slept with you. I could not help admiring the fruits of a theatrical education, and was much amused. Bellino came back. We went out together, and we took our walk towards the harbour. There were several vessels at anchor, and among them a Venetian ship and a Turkish tartan. We went on board the first, which we visited with interest, but, not seeing anyone of my acquaintance, we rode towards the Turkish tartan, where the most romantic surprise awaited me. The first person I met on board was the beautiful Greek woman I had left in Ancona seven months before, when I went away from the lazaretto. She was seated near the old captain, of whom I inquired, without appearing to notice his handsome slave, whether he had any fine goods to sell. He took us to his cabin, but, as I cast a glance towards the charming Greek, she expressed by her looks all her delight at such an unexpected meeting. I pretended not to be pleased with the goods shown by the Turk, and, under the impulse of inspiration, I told him that I would willingly buy something pretty which would take the fancy of his better half. He smiled, and the Greek slave having whispered a few words to him, he left the cabin. The moment he was out of sight, this new Aspasia threw herself in my arms, saying, Now is your time. I would not be found wanting in courage, and taking the most convenient position in such a place, I did to her in one instant that which her old master had not done in five years. I had not yet reached the goal of my wishes, when the unfortunate girl, hearing her master, tore herself from my arms with a deep sigh, and placing herself cunningly in front of me, gave me time to repair the disorder of my dress, which might have cost me my life, or at least all I possessed, to compromise the affair. In that curious situation, I was highly amused at the surprise of Bellino, who stood there trembling like an aspen leaf. 
The trifles, chosen by the handsome slave, cost me only thirty sequins. Spolates, she said to me in her own language, and the Turk telling her that she ought to kiss me, she covered her face with her hands and ran away. I left the ship more sad than pleased, for I regretted that, in spite of her courage, she should have enjoyed only an incomplete pleasure. As soon as we were in our rowboat, Bellino, who had recovered from his fright, told me that I had just made him acquainted with a phenomenon, the reality of which he could not admit, and which gave him a very strange idea of my nature, that, as far as the Greek girl was concerned, he could not make her out, unless I should assure him that every woman in her country was like her, how unhappy they must be, he added. Do you think, I asked, that coquettes are happier? No, but I think that when a woman yields to love, she should not be conquered before she had fought with her own desires. She should not give way to the first impulse of a lustful desire and abandon herself to the first man who takes her fancy, like an animal. The slave of sense. You must confess that the Greek woman has given you an evident proof that you had taken her fancy, but that she has, at the same time, given you a proof not less certain of her beastly lust, and of an effrontery which exposed her to the shame of being repulsed. For she could not possibly know whether you would feel as well disposed for her as she felt for you. She is very handsome, and it all turned out well, but the adventure has thrown me into a whirlpool of agitation, which I cannot yet control. I might easily have put a stop to Bellino's perplexity, and rectified the mistake he was labouring under. But such a confession would not have ministered to my self-love, and I held my peace. For, if Bellino happened to be a girl, as I suspected, I wanted her to be convinced that I attached after all, but very little importance to the great affair, and that it was not worth while employing cunning expedients to obtain it. We returned to the inn, and, towards evening, hearing Don Sancio's travelling carriage roll into the yard, I hastened to meet him, and told him that I hoped he would excuse me if I had felt certain that he would not refuse me the honour of his company to supper with Bellino. He thanked me politely for the pleasure I was so delicately offering him, and accepted my invitation. The most exquisite dishes, the most delicious wines of Spain, and, more than everything else, the cheerfulness and the charming voices of Bellino and of Cecilia gave the Castilian five delightful hours. He left me at midnight, saying that he could not declare himself thoroughly pleased unless I promised to sup with him the next evening, with the same guests. It would compel me to postpone my departure for another day, but I accepted. As soon as Don Sancio had gone, I called upon Bellino to fulfil his promise. But he answered that Marinetta was waiting for me, and that, as I was not going away, the next day, he would find an opportunity of satisfying my doubts. And wishing me a good night, he left the room. Marinetta as cheerful as a lark, ran to lock the door, and came back to me, her eyes beaming with ardour. She was more formed than Cecilia, although one year younger, 
and seemed anxious to convince me of her superiority. But, thinking that the fatigue of the preceding night might have exhausted my strength, she unfolded all the amorous ideas of her mind, explained at length all she knew of the great mystery she was going to enact with me, and of all the contrivances she had had recourse to in order to acquire her imperfect knowledge, the whole interlarded with the foolish talk natural of her age. I made out that she was afraid of my not finding her a maiden, and of my reproaching her about it. Her anxiety pleased me, and I gave her a new confidence by telling her that nature had refused to many young girls what is called maidenhood, and that only a fool could be angry with a girl for such a reason. My science gave her courage and confidence, and I was compelled to acknowledge that she was very superior to her sister. I am delighted you find me so, she said. We must not sleep at all throughout the night. Sleep, my darling, will prove our friend, and our strength renewed by repose will reward you in the morning for what you may suppose lost time. And truly, after a quiet sleep, the morning was for her a succession of fresh triumphs, and I crowned her happiness by sending her away with three doubloons, which she took to her mother, and which gave the good woman an insatiable desire to contract new obligations towards Providence. I went out to get some money from the banker, as I did not know what might happen during my journey. I had enjoyed myself, but I had spent too much. Yet there was Bellino, who, if a girl, was not to find me less generous than I had been with the two younger sisters. It was to be decided during the day, and I fancied that I was sure of the result. There are some persons who pretend that life is only a succession of misfortunes, which is as much as to say that life itself is a misfortune. But if life is a misfortune, death must be exactly the reverse, and therefore death must be happiness, since death is the very reverse of life. That deduction may appear too finely drawn, but those who say that life is a succession of misfortunes are certainly either ill or poor. For, if they enjoyed good health, if they had cheerfulness in their heart, and money in their purse, if they had for their enjoyment a Cecilia, a Marinetta, and even a more lovely beauty in perspective, they would soon entertain a very different opinion of life. I hold them to be a race of pessimists, recruited amongst beggarly philosophers and knavish, atribilious theologians. If pleasure does exist, and if life is necessary to enjoy pleasure, then life is happiness. There are misfortunes, as I know by experience, but the very existence of such misfortunes proves that the sum total of happiness is greater. Because a few thorns are to be found in a basket full of roses, is the existence of those beautiful flowers to be denied? No, it is a slander to deny that life is happiness. When I am in a dark room, it pleases me greatly to see through a window an immense horizon before me. As supper time was drawing near, I went to Don Sancio, whom I found in magnificently furnished apartments. The table was loaded with silver plate, and his servants were in livery. He was alone, 
but all the guests arrived soon after me. Cecilia, Marina, and Bellino, who, either by caprice or from taste, was dressed as a woman. The two young sisters, prettily arranged, looked charming, but Bellino, in his female costume, so completely threw them into the shade that my last doubt vanished. Are you satisfied, I said to Don Sancio, that Bellino is a woman? Woman or man, what do I care? I think he is a very pretty castrato, and I have seen many as good-looking as he is. But are you sure he is a castrato? Valgame Dios, answered the grave Castilian. I have not the slightest wish to ascertain the truth. Oh, how widely different our thoughts were. I admired in him the wisdom of which I was so much in need, and did not venture upon any more indiscreet questions. During the supper, however, my greedy eyes could not leave that charming being. My vicious nature caused me to feel intense voluptuousness in believing him to be of that sex to which I wanted him to belong. Don Sancio's supper was excellent, and, as a matter of course, superior to mine. Otherwise the pride of the Castilian would have felt humbled. As a general rule, men are not satisfied with what is good. They want the best, or, to speak more to the point, the most. He gave us white truffles, several sorts of shellfish, the best fish of the Adriatic, Dry champagne, Peralta, Sherry, and Pedroximenes wines. After that supper, worthy of Lucillus, Bellino sang with a voice of such beauty that it deprived us of the small amount of reason left in us by the excellent wine. His movements, the expression of his looks, his gait, his walk, his countenance, his voice, and above all, my own instinct, which told me that I could not possibly feel for a castrato what I felt for Bellino, confirmed me in my hopes. Yet it was necessary that my eyes should ascertain the truth. After many compliments and a thousand thanks, we took leave of the Grand Spaniard and went to my room, where the mystery was at last to be unravelled. I called upon Bellino to keep his word, or I threatened to leave him alone the next morning at daybreak. I took him by the hand, and we seated ourselves near the fire. I dismissed Cecilia and Marina, and I said to him, Bellino, everything must have an end. You have promised. It will soon be over. If you are what you represent yourself to be, I will let you go back to your own room. If you are what I believe you to be, and if you consent to remain with me tonight, I will give you one hundred sequins, and we will start together tomorrow morning. You must go alone, and forgive me if I cannot fulfil my promise. I am what I told you, and I can neither reconcile myself to the idea of exposing my shame before you, nor lay myself open to the terrible consequences of what might follow the solution of your doubts. There can be no consequences, since there will be an end to it 
at the moment I have assured myself that you are unfortunate enough to be what you say, and, without ever mentioning the circumstances again, I promise to take you with me tomorrow, and to leave you at Rimini. No, my mind is made up, I cannot satisfy your curiosity. Driven to madness by his words, I was very near using violence, but, subduing my angry feelings, I endeavoured to succeed by gentle means, and by going straight to the spot where the mystery could be solved. I was very near it, when his hand opposed a very strong resistance. I repeated my efforts, but Bellino, rising suddenly, repulsed me, and I found myself undone. After a few moments of calm, thinking I should take him by surprise, I extended my hand, but I drew back terrified, for I fancied that I had recognised in him a man, and a degraded man, contemptible less on account of his degradation than for the want of feeling I thought I could read on his countenance. Disgusted, confused, and almost blushing for myself, I sent him away. His sisters came to my room, but I dismissed them, sending word to their brother that he might go with me without any fear of further indiscretion on my part. Yet, in spite of the conviction I thought I had acquired, Bellino, even such as I believe him to be, filled my thoughts. I could not make it out. Early the next morning I left Ancona with him, distracted by the tears of the two charming sisters, and loaded with the blessings of the mother, who, with beads in her hand, mumbled her paternoster, and repeated her constant theme, Dio Providera. The trust, placed in providence, by most of those persons who earn their living by some profession forbidden by religion, is neither absurd, nor false, nor deceitful. It is real, and even godly, for it flows from an excellent source. Whatever may be the ways of providence, human beings must always acknowledge it in its action, and those who call upon providence, independently of all external consideration, must, at the bottom, be worthy, although guilty of transgressing its laws. Pulcra laverna, da mihi falere, da justo sanctoque videri, noctem pacatis, et fraudubis objice nubem. Such was the way in which, in the days of Horace, robbers addressed their goddess. And I recollect a Jesuit who told me once that Horace would not have known his own language, if he had said, Justo Santoque. But there were ignorant men even amongst the Jesuits, and robbers most likely have but little respect for the rules of grammar. The next morning I started with Bellino, who, believing me to be undeceived, could suppose that I would not show any more curiosity about him. But we had not been a quarter of an hour together when he found out his mistake, for I could not let my looks fall upon his splendid eyes without feeling in me a fire which the sight of a man could not have ignited. I told him that all his features were those of a woman, and that I wanted the testimony of my eyes before I could feel perfectly satisfied, because the protuberance I had felt in a certain place might be only a freak of nature. Should it be the case, I added, 
I should have no difficulty in passing over a deformity which, in reality, is only laughable. Bellino, the impression you produce upon me, this sort of magnetism, your bosom worthy of Venus herself, which you have once abandoned to my eager hand, the sound of your voice, every movement of yours, assure me that you do not belong to my sex. Let me see for myself, and, if my conjectures are right, depend upon my faithful love. If, on the contrary, I find that I have been mistaken, you can rely upon my friendship. If you refuse me, I shall be compelled to believe that you are cruelly enjoying my misery, and that you have learned in the most accursed school that the best way of preventing a young man from curing himself of an amorous passion is to excite it constantly. But you must agree with me that, to put such tyranny in practice, it is necessary to hate the person it is practised upon. And if that be so, I ought to call upon my reason to give me the strength necessary to hate you likewise. I went on speaking for a long time. Bellino did not answer, but he seemed deeply moved. At last I told him that, in the fearful state to which I was reduced by his resistance, I should be compelled to treat him without any regard for his feelings, and find out the truth by force. He answered with much warmth and dignity, Recollect that you are not my master, that I am in your hands because I had faith in your promise, and that, if you use violence, you will be guilty of murder. Order the postillion to stop, I will get out of the carriage, and you may rely upon my not complaining of your treatment. Those few words were followed by a torrent of tears, a sight which I never could resist. I felt myself moved in the most inmost recesses of my soul, and I almost thought that I had been wrong. I say almost, because, had I been convinced of it, I would have thrown myself at his feet entreating pardon. But, not feeling myself competent to stand in judgment in my own cause, I satisfied myself by remaining dull and silent, and I never uttered one word until we were only half a mile from Sinigaglia, where I intended to take supper and to remain for the night. Having fought long enough with my own feelings, I said to him, We might have spent a little time in Rimini, like good friends, if you had felt any friendship for me. For, with a little kind compliance, you could have easily cured me of my passion. It would not cure you, answered Bellino, courageously, but with a sweetness of tone which surprised me. No, you would not be cured, whether you found me to be a man or woman, for you are in love with me, independently of my sex, and the certainty you would acquire would make you furious. In such a state, should you find me inexorable, you would very likely give way to excesses which would afterwards cause you deep sorrow. You expect to make me admit that you are right, but you are completely mistaken, for I feel that I should remain perfectly calm, and that by complying with my wishes you would gain my friendship. I tell you again that you would become furious. Bellino, that which has made me furious is the sight of your charms, either too real or too completely deceiving the power of which you cannot affect to ignore. 
you have not been afraid to ignite my amorous fury. How can you expect me to believe you now, when you pretend to fear it, and when I am only asking you to let me touch a thing, which, if it be as you say, will only disgust me? Ah, disgust you. I am quite certain of the contrary. Listen to me. Were I a girl, I feel I could not resist loving you. But, being a man, it is my duty not to grant what you desire. For your passion, now very natural, would then become monstrous. Your ardent nature would be stronger than your reason, and your reason itself would easily come to the assistance of your senses and of your nature. That violent clearing up of the mystery, were you to obtain it, would leave you deprived of all control over yourself. Disappointed in not finding what you had expected, you would satisfy your passion upon that which you would find, and the result would, of course, be an abomination. How can you, intelligent as you are, flatter yourself that, finding me to be a man, you could all at once cease to love me? Would the charms which you now see in me cease to exist then? Perhaps their power would, on the contrary, be enhanced, and your passion, becoming brutal, would lead you to take any means your imagination suggested to gratify it. You would persuade yourself that you might change me into a woman, or, what is worse, that you might change yourself into one. Your passion would invent a thousand sophisms to justify your love, decorated with a fine appellation of friendship, and you would not fail to allege hundreds of similarly disgusting cases in order to excuse your conduct. You would certainly never find me compliant. And how am I to know that you would not threaten me with death? Nothing of the sort would happen, Bellino, I answered, rather tired of the length of his argument. Positively nothing, and I am sure that you are exaggerating your fears. Yet I am bound to tell you that, even if all you say should happen, it seems to me that to allow what can strictly be considered only as a temporary fit of insanity would prove a less evil than to render incurable a disease of the mind which reason would soon cut short. Thus does a poor philosopher reason when he takes it into his head to argue at those periods during which a passion raging in his soul makes all its faculties wander. To reason well, we must be under the sway neither of love nor of anger, for those two passions have one thing in common, which is that, in their excess, they lower us to the condition of brutes, acting only under the influence of their predominating instinct, and, unfortunately, we are never more disposed to argue than when we feel ourselves under the influence of either of those two powerful human passions. We arrived at Sinningaglia late at night, and I went to the best inn, and, after choosing a comfortable room, ordered supper. As there was but one bed in the room, I asked Bellino, in as calm a tone as I could assume, whether he would have a fire lighted in another chamber. And my surprise may be imagined when he answered quietly that he had no objection to sleep in the same bed with me. Such an answer, however unexpected, was necessary to dispel the angry feelings under which I was labouring. I guessed that I was near the denouement of the romance, that I was very far from congratulating myself. For I did not know 
whether the denouement would prove agreeable or not. I felt, however, a real satisfaction at having conquered, and was sure of my self-control, in case the senses, my natural instinct, led me astray. But, if I found myself in the right, I thought I could expect the most precious favours. We sat down to supper opposite each other, and during the meal, his words, his countenance, the expression of his beautiful eyes, his sweet and voluptuous smile, everything seemed to announce that he had had enough of playing a part which must have proved as painful to him as to me. A weight was lifted off my mind, and I managed to shorten the supper as much as possible. As soon as we had left the table, my amiable companion called for a night lamp, undressed himself and went to bed. I was not long in following him, and the reader will soon know the nature of a denouement so long and so ardently desired. In the meantime, I beg to wish him as happy a night as the one which was then awaiting me. End of chapter 11